This episode was made possible by our incredible patrons who faithfully support the work of amplifying the voices of spiritual abuse survivors. We are an extremely small team comprised of just two families with a passion for stories and image bearers. We committed early on to not monetizing any of the stories and rely solely on the donations of our Patreon community to operate. If you value this work and are able to contribute, you can join for as little as $5 a month. Another way you can support us is by following, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It only takes a moment, but it has a big impact on our reach. Thank you for daring to listen. This week, we will be sharing David and Margaret's story over two episodes. Today, we will be featuring part two of David and Margaret's story. If you haven't checked out part one, please do so before listening to part two. I'm Jay Coyle, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. The other guys, like, they were just, they were, like, down, heads down, upset, feeling bad. But Pastor N turned toward me, and he kind of, like, he was sitting on one of our other couches, and he kind of, like, leaned forward, put his hands on his elbows, and he's just, like, looking at me. And he's got this very sad expression on his face, but there's also this thing that, like, I've seen him do many times where he's, like, I'm asking you a question with my gaze. Mm-hmm. You know, if I looked at him, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I just wouldn't look at him and just kept taking notes, writing things down, taking notes. So they are saying their piece, and my wife is vibrating with sobs. I mean, like, and my kids hear their mom crying and they're terrified because they've never heard an adult cry like this. I mean, like, I can't describe it. I can't fathom how much grief, Margaret, you in that moment had. Like my bot, like my brain wants to break in half imagining. Like, I would not be shocked if you were sweating blood like Jesus in the garden in that moment. It is like that much betrayal happened in that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It. I I knew I was going to lose every friend that I had. So I mean, I'm instantly going into like, okay. Literally, how do I, how do I survive? How do I, how do I care for my children through this? And so I'm thinking through like, okay, I've got to instantly start like coming up with plans, but I can't do this by myself. And so I ask, is this something I have to keep quiet or can I talk to my friends? Because what you've just done is done is throw a bomb in in the middle of my entire life. I have to rethink my birth plan. We have to rethink housing. We have to rethink everything. And they were like, oh yeah, we know who your friends are and we trust them. So yeah, you can tell, you can tell whoever you want. We trust you. Just don't slander us. So what they put forward, what they proposed was this, okay, so here's the deal. Now, your health is so bad that you can't continue, yada, 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 right? And we, we can't keep supporting you. Okay. So they said, 
what we would pitch is that you go to your GI doc, and if he is willing to write a letter to the church guaranteeing that you will be able to function at 90% capacity for five years with no hospitalizations, no like health issues, then you can stay on. But if not, if he won't write that letter, then you have to resign by the end of February. And you know, we'll provide some severance or something. Okay. Totally. There's, logical. That is a ridiculous ask. But I also, was the church struggling financially? No. No. Okay, that's key because it's not like they couldn't keep you on staff financially, but they're making it seem like you're a burden. Every um, members meeting for a long time leading up to this, it had been like, guys, we are doing so well. Look at all the money we added to savings. Like we're doing so well financially. And you had been working for below poverty line up until two days ago or three days ago. Okay. And that's important too, is they told us, they said, do not, part of why they weren't going to announce to the church what was going on with David's job for over a month was because they didn't, they told us to not to let anyone know that they pushed for us to get a raise that Sunday at that business meeting, knowing the next day they were going to fire David because they wanted to be able to help us transition to another career or to living on disability better. We wanted to give a better severance. Thanks, guys. Uh, yeah, it's like, oh, thank you yeah. for that. That's so kind of you. So there, there are two fascinating little items there. One being that you told your congregation, we want to provide our beloved pastor with a raise because he's worth it. And because you had just had an evaluation that was perfect. Yeah. You had just had an employee evaluation and everything was perfect. Also, side note, this is extremely illegal. Any lawyers listening out there that are that have worked in this field are like seeing dollar signs right now. This is not okay, church. And if you're doing this in your church, it is illegal and wrong. And you should be asking questions if you're seeing this happening. It would be so great if it was illegal. Well, here's where we've got to pump an important loophole in the Americans with Disabilities Act. Guess who doesn't have to comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act? Churches of a certain size. Uh, of a certain size. But if you're below a certain number of employees and you're a church, then there's a nice big loophole here where the ADA doesn't apply to you. This infuriates me so much because I was wrongfully terminated too under California law. But uh, any attorney that I would talk to, which I wasn't even trying to do anything, I was actually talking to attorneys for a different reason. Yeah. They would say, like, nobody will touch churches. No one's going to touch a yeah. church because it's so hard to get anything done legally with a church. How gross. So just because because you can, you got away with that. But in any other work situation, this would be highly illegal. Churches are the least safe place for Americans with disabilities is what this this what equals. It's the least safe workplace for those who are sick and disabled. Did either of you bring up the fact that they lied to your faces or I guess over the phone or I don't know, that they lied? That came later, yeah. So this first night was basically just David and I being in shock. 
And then we met again on Wednesday. So that was a Monday night. We met again on Wednesday and had another conversation. So that first meeting, um, Margaret was trying to survive and I was trying to survive, but we took very different paths to do it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Talk about that, dear. So I trusted these men so much and had spent so much of my time with them always trying to view them in the best light possible. And every time they did something that I thought was unwise, I would, you know, be like, oh, well, they're probably working from not enough information or they're doing the best they can. Like I was always trying to almost like lawyer for them in my mind to, so that I could believe the best about them. First Corinthians 13, love believes all things, right? And so when it came to this, I was like, this must be killing them to do this. This must be so hard for them. They must not really understand how medical things work, which, I mean, they're all healthy men, young men. So they probably hadn't cared for sick people. In fact, I knew them well enough to know that they hadn't. They hadn't been sick. And so maybe they just like are just so out of touch with how this stuff works that like once I push back, there will be room for some sort of collaboration and I will be able to like help them see how much this is going to kill us. I wanted to let them know, like, I, I still love you. Like, I want to work with you on this. Like, I wanted them to know that I could forgive them for what they had just done and we could come back for, from this. And I was willing to extend every grace in the world to them but that like I wanted to reconcile and, and, and restore this because this really hurt. And so, um, you know, I, I told him I was heartbroken, but I also thanked them for like loving us. And I, oh, I don't know. I just, I fawned so hard. I told them I knew how hard it must be for them. And I basically just f- fell over myself trying to appease them, I guess. Meanwhile, I went... I don't know. I'm not even sure how to describe it. I just, I went super like downshifted into, I'm not going to say anything concrete to you people into sort of this like, okay, so this is your, so I went very lawyer, right? Okay. So this is your perspective. This is your opinion. understanding this correctly. And I was like asking questions around it to like get the feel. Um, and then Basically, like I, I don't remember this super clearly because it was obviously a mess. But basically, I said, "I'm, I'm not signing off on anything here. I'm not agreeing to anything. We need to revisit this. This seems short-sighted to me, and I think there's another way to solve this problem." But the thing in particular that came out of that conversation that stuck out to me as we were headed into this second meeting that got called was that. Pastor Inn had alluded to something. He didn't come right out and say it just yet, but he had alluded to the fact that, well, um, what's going on with you is causing me a lot of problems. And so that's part of why we've got to make this happen, right? It's this really stressful thing. So you nearly dying is causing stress in his life. Is that? Yeah. Okay. Basically, causing stress in his life. That switched on a bulb on my switchboard, and I thought, I got to come back to that. But they left, and later I had a conversation with with one of them, and they said they left feeling like, oh, wow, you know, they're just taking this so well. They're just being so godly and just, you know, just really um, – and then I had had to sort of send out another email communication because they clearly didn't get it um, where I was like, no, we're coming back to this, guys. Like I have not agreed to anything, 
And so this guy was like, oh, they're being so godly and gracious. But then, you know, it became really like, I, I like we misunderstood, like we must have misunderstood because you just like you weren't OK with this. Well, yeah, buddy. And are you officially fired or you still have this like maybe my doctor will send a note in situation? I knew my GI well enough to know that he was going to lose his mind. Yes. Any normal living human loses their mind in a situation like this. But a doctor's like. I'm try- I'm like withholding so many cuss words for you guys right now. <laughs> so we didn't walk out of that conversation, quote unquote, fired. Right. Because well, we were like, out. oh, well, obviously the church has to vote on this. We can't do this. We can't fire you. It's up to the church. Well, they, they never said the word fire. but And that became a point of contention later. But <laughs> did they say transition? Uh, yeah, that was one word, transition. They said, no, you'll um, still be a pastor. You just won't get paid for it. You can still be a lay pastor. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my yeah, gosh. Yeah, that was good. Um, there was a lot of emphasis put on that as though that sort of solved the problem. And we're not saying we don't want you to be a pastor. We want you to, we want, we want you here as, as, as a pastor. We just, we just can't have you on staff. So as if, you know, like that was the same thing. It's not, but that's neither here nor there. So the next day I went to three of my closest friends who were also close to all of the elders. So I felt safe. Like they weren't going to, I don't know, like, I knew that they would understand these men and that they would be able to help me understand these men. And so I told them and I tried to stick, keep all the drama out of it. I tried to just stick to the facts because they had said, don't slander me. And I was terrified that I would be accused of having slandered them. And all three of my friends were very upset and they were like, are you okay with it if we speak to the elders ourselves and tell them that we're not okay with this? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I think that's how this is supposed to work. Like, I think that's what's supposed to happen. (laughs) And I also went to, I had a group of women that I talked to frequently, like a small group of women that I talked to online. And I was like, this is what's going on. I talked to them about a lot of stuff that had been hard at the church and in ministry up until that point. So they knew like a lot of the backstory. And I told them what had gone on and got a lot of advice and encouragement that, you know, I didn't even feel like I had the ability to act on the advice. And a lot that they were very angry on our behalf. And then um, the next day, so this, so the, they, Elders came on a Monday night. I talked to these friends on Tuesday. Wednesday morning, I take David to the doctor for a follow-up. And as we're driving back from the doctor's appointment, David gets a phone call from a professor saying that there was a post on um, the Baptist Review, which is, I don't even know what, it's some Facebook group, I think, where someone had said, that their friend was going through a situation and gave enough details that like anyone who remotely knew our story would know that it was us that this woman was talking about and our church and that it was, he's like, I know enough, like it looks real bad and I don't think you guys want this out there. The post stayed up for 20 minutes, but in that time, most people at our seminary and all the elders at the church saw it. Got screenshotted and passed around. Yeah. And so, and it looks bad because of their actions, not you guys. Correct. Yes. And question mark. So it's really complicated. And this is like, I've thought so many times, like, how would this have been different if this had never happened? 
because the post outlined what had just happened to us, um, gave some background of David's health and gave background of how like we hadn't been paid well up until that point and gave a lot of very true sentiments, but the poster was not 100% accurate with everything because like, so she quote- It wasn't their story. Right. right. She quoted like- like the wrong salary for us. She quoted the wrong salary for the pastor. She quoted a couple of other inaccuracies like that. But also who cares? She didn't name anybody. Right. But so what happened was I am instantly, instead of like it being, okay, the Bronsons and the elders need to meet and like find a way forward with this. It became Margaret is attacking the elders. Margaret is trying to paint the elders as evil. She is trying to sway everyone against them and she is being divisive. The entire tone of everything from this, like completely changes from this moment forward. I become the bad guy. It's worth saying that like prior to this point, like all of our communications with these guys, like at this point were fairly guarded because the power differential, while it was definitely tilted in their favor, like I think they knew that if we had wanted to, we could have made it very ugly right away. You had the relational equity. Yeah, I, and in particular, I'm thinking that it would have been it would have been a very brief matter to just call person the personnel committee who had not really been included in this conversation in any meaningful way and say, "All right, guys, this is in your purview. These guys have come up with this. How do you feel about that?" And now all of a sudden, right. like we've got a very different set of conversations happening, which I didn't want to do because there was still a part of me that was hoping that I could like help these guys see sense and be like, look, if this is such a problem, there are other ways to solve it. But the minute that this happened, this shifted into attack mode instantaneously. First, we get an email from Pastor N that says basically like, here's the screenshot of this Facebook post that I, that I was seeing for the first time. And this is happening while I'm driving. I'm literally seeing like triple vision. I am so stressed out of my mind. I have to pull over on the side of the highway to look at this and everything in me, like I, I was mental. Like it was, I was, I knew this was so bad. Anyway, so basically like explain yourself. Instead of responding to the email, David called Pastor N. And then I was like, hand me the phone. <laughs> like, hand me the phone. I'm a big girl. I can I can talk about this. Like, I can deal with him. And so I apologized profusely because I knew how much it must hurt because the things that were said in it could not have felt good for him to read. His own behavior could not have felt good for him to read when it's written down on a paper. Yeah, exactly. And so... You know, I apologize and I try to explain and I finish explaining. He's like, okay, that makes sense. I understand. I think we need to have another meeting just to make sure that the air is clear. We need to give you guys time to talk about and like tell us what you guys think about the plan. I was like, Pastor N, I know that you need help. Like I know that when David goes into the hospital, it puts a lot of stress on you. Here are three solutions that I think would be far better for the church. I think that First of all, David needs an assistant. Our church is getting big enough. We have the money to do it. And our church is big into training ministers. There are so many men who are looking for training in worship ministry. Give him an assistant. That way he can take a break off that's not for a hospitalization every once in a while. He can train another man. There's someone else can be getting some 
ministry experience. And then if he has to go in the hospital, you don't have to worry about it because there's someone to help cover that. Or hire a second person to be the worship pastor and have David move to discipleship or something that doesn't require, like if you miss a Sunday, it's not going to be the end of the world. And I had a third, I don't remember the third solution was. And what Pastor N told me is we don't have the money for that and we don't have the work for that. I was like, okay, well, whatever. So he and the other elders came Wednesday night. We had a whole long conversation. I said, like, I'm very confused because the way you guys are acting and have presented this information, like even if this was a conversation that needed to happen, I feel like it could have been a conversation. I feel like you could have told us that there were problems that needed to be addressed and we could have come up with a solution together. The fact that you went about it this way feels like the way you treat a derelict employee, an employee that has not been performing well, but he just got a raise and had a perfect employee review. So which is it? They're like, oh yeah, there's no problem with David's performance. And I was like, then why are you acting like there is? And they were like, well, actually there are problems with David's performance. Uh, Sometimes he doesn't respond to emails right away or he doesn't respond to text messages. So I came loaded for bear in that meeting. And in particular, the thing that I wanted to begin with was that item. Um, was, okay, you guys sat down as pastors in the church that ecclesiologically and doctrinally says we've got to have unity from all of our pastors about these decisions. Keep that in mind. We've got to, like, like all of our pastors need to be involved in major pastoral decisions. Y'all met without me. And as it turns out, they met without me several times to discuss this. Y'all met without me. You didn't include me in this conversation. And then you came in and informed me that you were going to do this. You informed me and my wife that this is how this is going to go. Which goes completely against how the church polity is supposed to work. And entirely against, like, if you could sit Mark Dever down and ask him how this situation would go, I'm fairly confident <laughs> that he would have some very strong opinions about this. Like, it doesn't even fit nine marks. No, it doesn't. Exactly. It was, it was a complete betrayal of everything that had been worked and taught and proclaimed from the pulpit and taught in Sunday school and all this stuff. And I said, and so you informed me. And now that I'm pushing back, you're trying to play the card of, well, this was, so this was a thing, like, this was just like, we were just asking your opinion. Right. They were like, oh, it was a conversation. You guys could have. You read a statement. Right. That's not a conversation. That's a reading. Exactly. And so my intent um, was the, with this TBR thing, with this accusation that Margaret had, like, was slandering these guys all over the internet. TBR is the Baptist Review. Sorry, yeah, the Baptist Review. Um, with that out there, like, I, I I wanted to make it clear, that's not actually the problem right now. Like, that's a problem that needs to be solved. We'll work that out. And there was, we'll get into that in a minute. But, like, we still have to address the fact that you walked into my house and you said what you did and you treated my wife and children the way that you did and took advantage of the fact that I was so drugged and in so much pain that I didn't tell you to get the frick out of my house on the spot, you know? And you want to tell me it was a conversation? We're not playing that game, fam. Like, if, if, if you want to, like, go at it like this, let's go. Their response to that was, but you don't... Oh, so then I was like, here are so many other solutions to this problem. Yeah. And their response was, but here's the thing. If David doesn't go, Pastor N's going to have a divorce. Yeah. And what? there it was. What world are we in? 
How and why? How is, I, yeah. how is your health issues impacting his marriage? David goes into the hospital. That causes Pastor N stress. Pastor N stressed is a really crappy husband, and it causes marital strife. And he works a lot, but actually he didn't need to. Like, yeah, he was never doing what David was doing anyway. No. Well, the part of so this is an important piece of this. The guy was a huge perfectionist, like to an obsessive, painful, right. over the top degree. And so what would happen is he put a lot of confidence in me to execute at a, at a very particular level, an extremely high level, especially considering the size of the church and the budget that we had. Mm-hmm. And being completely honest, I could probably only do that about eighty percent of the time. Mm-hmm. So when but I be was perfect, yeah, be perfect. And have to no be batteries. clear, yeah, to be clear, the kinds of things we're talking about here are like we'd have a volunteer. It was, we had we had a very slide heavy service, um, a lot of liturgies. There's a lot of readings, a lot of things on screen. I mean, there there'd be as many as a hundred slides to go through on a Sunday, which oh is a gosh. good bit. And so if a, if a volunteer advanced a slide late right? Like half a second too late or or something like that. That was immediately an issue in staff meeting that I had to resolve. So like that's the level of perfectionism we're talking about here, right? Um, If one of our volunteer unpaid sound people had an issue mixing in this incredibly difficult, just badly designed room, badly designed as far as like sound issues go, if something wasn't sounding right or there was an echo or just he didn't like the way something was EQ'd, that was an issue on Monday. It was on my plate. You've got to fix this. What's the matter with you? You've got to control your volunteers. Or he'd just scream at them. That happened too. Yeah, he did a lot of that. Did a lot of screaming at volunteers. I couldn't keep volunteers, as a matter of fact, because they would serve for six months and just get completely burnt out by him, like being on them all the time. And then they'd bounce. And then that was also my problem. What's the matter with you, man? Why can't you keep volunteers? Right. Anyway, point is that I was the buffer between the 60 or so volunteers that made up our worship ministry and him. And when I wasn't there. How big is your church? It was like 250. Okay, we went, that's a really, a really good volunteer turnout. It, it is. You must have been doing something right. Well, it had to be because the turnover was huge. So like all 60 of those people were not on all the time. This is like rotation stuff. Um, we had about 20 people that did worship and then between 30 and 40 people at any given time who were like rotating through other things, right? Yep, okay. So we have this meeting, nothing's really resolved. Um, we're told that basically... The, el- the other elders felt like they had to choose between keeping us on staff and Pastor N's marriage. And ultimately, we're like, obviously, we have to save the marriage. They were like, this is what we have to do. So they leave. And then we get an email that says like, okay, we know we didn't talk about the Baptist Review thing and Margaret, but we are not okay with that. We are not resolved. David, you need to come in and we're going to have it out and talk it out. So David goes to a middle-of-the-night meeting on Friday of that week to meet with the elders. You are eight days out from you might die. Yes. And that meeting was vile, absolutely vile. Um, I had to sit through Pastor in saying things about Margaret that I won't repeat. Mm-hmm. Um, and my one regret is that I didn't punch him in the face. It was so bad that at one point Pastor S gets up and he like literally goes and he sort of stands – like not directly between us, like because Pastor In is up and he's walking around the room. And he's animated. I'm sitting because you know, eight days out from almost right. dying. And past, uh, Pastor S gets up and he kind of stands sort of between us and he looks me in the eye and he goes, "Okay, now like that was hard to hear. Like, are you okay? Like, is there anything you want to say?" 
No, I don't have anything to say. Um, for the very simple reason that I wanted him to keep talking. I wanted Pastor in to keep talking in front of these dudes and saying all the things that he was saying because, like, I didn't feel that I needed to clarify that this was monstrous and insane. He at, at some point went on a rant about how like we you you've got to like we've got to get rid of you because we don't get rid of you. I'm going to destroy my ministry. I'm going to end up leaving my wife or cheating or doing something crazy and like getting a divorce. And he's going on and on and on. And that probably summarizes like that statement right there summarizes the thing. But like then he goes and pivots. But Pastor S also said that basically we were accepting help from people, which meant that people weren't able to support Pastor N and his family. Yeah. We were open and vocal about the fact that we had needs, which forced them to be quiet about what they needed and not get the help they needed. And so we needed to leave because we were just yeah. taking too much. Now, at this point in the meeting, I think Pastor In figures out he's shooting himself in the foot because I'm not talking and the other guys are all sitting there with their heads down. And if you've ever been in a church meeting like that where there's a person ranting and everyone's sitting around with their heads between their knees, then you know what the vibe is. So he stops ranting and he pivots to Margaret, who's not in the room. And he tells me she's going to have to fall on her sword. Like it, like there can be no relationship between us if she doesn't just apologize. I don't want to hear what her defense is. I don't want to hear her defend herself. Like that's not – like she's betrayed us. She's betrayed all of us. She did apologize. Now, he, But he wanted me to say – that I had intentionally gone to this woman and said lies about them so that she would post to TBR and get basically all of the Baptists to be upset with him, which I'm not smart enough. I'm literally not smart enough for that. Only people like Pastor N are smart enough to do something like that. I didn't That's even know this thing part. existed. Like, I am a woman. I am not in any network. There's no network for me in the SBC. I didn't know this existed. You're just hoping your husband lives to see tomorrow. I am five months pregnant with three children, four and under, and a severely ill husband and very few dollars to pay the bills. Like, So, I, yeah. He starts going on about how, well, clearly Margaret's been bitter against me for a long time and da-da-da because he's pumped all this thing into this woman's head. What he did not know was that I had in my hot little hands at that exact moment a confession from the woman who posted it. Yes. Now, the problem was that Margaret and I had like talked this over and I'd reached out to her and I said, listen, I know that like you were trying to help here. I know you were well-intentioned, but like this is causing problems. I need you to write very plainly and clearly what you did and why you did it because I know you love Margaret and you're trying to care for her, but this is actually causing her enormous problems. I need you to confess basically. Mm -hmm. And she did. She mm -hmm. did. She wrote a confession and I had it. And in the end, it didn't matter. It did not matter that I had in this woman's words like her own confession that – she had done it and that Margaret didn't have anything to do with it. But all that mattered was that Margaret commit seppuku in order to satisfy this guy's need to be vindicated. And I sat there and listened to him say this and thought, these guys have all seen it. I don't need to say anything. Like he's, he's shown who he is. And instead, they all went around the room and agreed. And that took the wind out of my sails more than I even know how to describe. Like I was prepared to dunk. And not in a, I don't mean that in a mean-spirited way. I was just prepared to say, you need to sit down and you need to write your resignation letter and let us help you. 
because I'd been beating that drum for years at this point. His marriage issues, his personal issues were not a secret. That is actually key, what you just said right there, though. So you had been saying to him, hey, this isn't okay. How's your marriage? You've actually been picking up that things are not okay. All the elders had been. All the elders had been confronting Pastor N about his marriage and about the way he was treating people, the angry, yelling Mm -hmm. stuff that he was doing. David was getting in his face in like some really like personal ways, like taking him out to lunch and like confronting him on things. And to be cl- to be clear here, like I, I'm up tempo right now. And that's because yeah. what's happening right now, what's happening right this second, this is what we're saying. This is the first time I think I've ever really let myself get, like feel angry about all this. Good. So like what God's is- God's mad it, about this. Yeah. What you're experiencing right now is really the first time I'm letting myself feel it. But I would sit down with him and go full-blown Fred Rogers. Like- so when I say confront him in this yeah. stuff, I'd sit down with him and just because like I really wanted this for him. Like, dude, yeah. you're safe to talk to me. Like we've been in the trenches together. I've had your back. Like I've mm-hmm. taken arrows for you and I will continue to do so. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to crap on whatever you've got going on. But your wife is sitting in Bible studies with other women talking about like things that if that you and I both know if a church member were doing them, we'd be sitting with him right now. Right. Yeah. Let me help you. He was looking for an opportunity to get rid of you. I you, think so. He cannot have someone like that. You were a huge threat to him. With you being willing to do that and the relational equity that you guys had built in this church, he had to get rid of you. Well, and David had recently given him a bit of an ultimatum. Yeah. He'd gone after him in this way, this Fred Rogers way, so many times over so many years, and it had been blown off and whatnot the whole time that he'd been like, you know, Pastor N, if, you know, there isn't a change, I'm going to have to go before the church. Like, I'm going to have to make an issue out of this because I love you, because I love your wife, because I love your children. And the thing is, I only ever implied that. I never even said that explicitly. Yeah. And how soon before you went into the hospital did you have that conversation? This was just a few weeks. We sat down. Yeah. Yeah. We sat down in a caribou coffee. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, look, man, you and I both know that like th- there is you have a you have a blasphemous anxiety to do God's work for him. That's a Peterson quote. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is driving you to not take care of your wife, not take care of your children and not take care of your own heart. And it's reached a crisis point. And I'm here to tell you that I like I love you and I want to help you. So this is Darvo. <laughs> <laughs> deny that he has a problem, attack David, and he reversed it so that David's health issues are actually what's causing him pain. And he's the victim of David's health issues. And if he doesn't leave, then his marriage is going to crumble. Yeah. And where this gets interesting is that Pastor S agreed with me. We talked about this and Pastor S told me, yeah, you know what? I, I think I need to take I need to take a little bit more of, a, of an aggressive stance on this and get after him myself. So I thought I had allies in the room when he was ranting about how if I didn't leave, he was going to cheat on his wife. So for these dudes to all agree and say, yes, Margaret has to just apologize. We don't want to hear any defense. We don't want to hear about this confession from this other lady. Like she just has to apologize for them to agree with that. She needs yeah. to lie. She needs to yes. lie. If she doesn't do that, then none of us are going to have a relationship with her. Like, we can't be friends. 
Uh, and their wives were my closest friends. So I'm going, oh, oh. So this is not what I thought it was at all. Yeah, I think at that point you knew there was no coming back from this. Yeah, and that was the first time that I thought to myself, I'm going to light a match, which I did not end up doing, but I did think it. I was way too pregnant and way too desperate for security to let him light any matches. Yeah. I was like, nope, we're going to do whatever it takes for us to get severance so I can pay to have this baby (laughs) and I can pay to feed the children and I can whatever we need to do to survive. So then they were like, well, we've, your family, this is all this drama has taken so much out of us. And it's just before Christmas because they fired us three weeks before Christmas. So we're going to take a break and we'll talk to you in January. So we get frozen out for the next, like, it was like mid January by the time they reached out to us again. They put me on sabbatical again during this stretch, um, three months. And the idea was that, well, you know, um, he needs to take some time to heal up so we can get his doctor to guarantee that he's going to, you know, function. I'm sorry, function at 70% capacity 90% of the time for the next five years. That was the, those were the numbers. That was it. And uh, so he needs to take three months to sort of heal up so that he can get this affirmation from this doctor. And so to everyone from the outside looking in, the Bronsons are on sabbatical. But what's really going on is Margaret has been systematically boxed in and put into the space where she can't talk to anyone about anything until this TBR thing, this Baptist Review thing is quote unquote resolved. I didn't even know if I was allowed to take the Lord's Supper. Oh my God. You know, because they, they always say, like, if you're a member in good standing, I was like, I don't think I am. Yeah. Like, so anyway, they contact us, and I'm told that I have to meet with each of the elders and their wives one on one, like each couple, and apologize directly to them. So I meet with Pastor S first, and it was a four or five hour conversation. And he was like, I want, see, here's the thing Pastor N, he's not going to believe you. I want to believe you. I don't believe you right now, but I want to believe you. And so I'm going to go at you really hard so that I can prepare you because whatever I do to you, Pastor N is going to do a lot worse. And so he stood over me and yelled at me and like asked the same questions over and over and over and over again, trying to get me to slip up and basically like prove that I had been lying all along and I had intentionally tried to hurt the church Because that was another thing. Every time someone would come to them and say, hey, this is happening with the Bronsons. We're really uncomfortable with it. We don't like it. Or they'd come and they were upset. They would say, the fact that someone was coming to them upset about what was happening was proof that we had lied because they were so sure that what they were doing was right that if we had just stepped the facts, there's no way people would be upset. And so the fact that people were coming upset meant that we must be inciting them to anger. And so I met with Pastor S first. It was one of the worst days of my life. He stood over me. And this was a man that I trusted so much and respected so much. And in the course of that conversation, come to find out that when I had met with him and Pastor N a year before, and they had prayed over me and told me that David would always have a job there, that at the end of that conversation, after I had left and gone and sung their praises about what good pastors they were because they actually pastored a woman, they had had a meeting and said, the next time this happens, he can't stay. Like, this is not sustainable. And the firing basically started then. At any rate, at the end of the conversation, Pastor S said that he felt satisfied and that he forgave me and that we were okay and that we were fine. 
And so then I met with the other Pastor S and Pastor B, and I did the same thing with them. And the last one I met with was Pastor N and his wife. At the end of it, he was like, okay, you've convinced me. I believe you. You know, there's grace for this. And we don't have to be at odds with each other. In fact, we can be closer than ever, better than ever. And I was just so relieved that it was over because this was two months of my life where I literally could taste the stress. I wasn't sleeping. I my hearing was going in and out. I was so stressed. And and this conflict with them was just a piece of it. I still had to figure out finances and housing and a job for David and where I was going to have my baby. And David needed surgery again in this time. And his surgery was a week before my due date. I ended up delivering the baby without David. I mean, it was just so, so much. And I, co- I couldn't tell anyone because because of this, the Baptist Review thing, anything I said, I was instantly under suspicion. And so I was cut off from everyone. I couldn't talk to people. I had a few people who left the church over it. But aside from them, I couldn't be honest with them for fear that it would get back to the elders. It was just so much. How do we justify treating people like this in disagreements in a church and expect people to look at us and say, yeah, I want to be a part of Christianity, or I want to be a part of that group, or I want to go to church. Like if, like if we treat our own this way, how are we treating people outside the walls of a church? I mean, it's sickening to think that these men discussed this and it was calculated and planned, and their only response was to pour more shame and gasoline on both of you and step and step back and watch you burn. Like that's. That's what that what that's the plan. This to me is I mean, like I'm trying to figure out the proper words to say without just saying a lot of F words of how <laughs> like this is not Christianity or the way that Jesus treats would yeah. ever want anyone to treat. It's the exact opposite. And it is yes. if anyone in that church thinks this is okay. I mean, I don't know what to say other than please read your Bible again and start. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to say. Like, this is horrible. What you say is they've been discipled yeah. so poorly if they think this is okay. And if anybody listening to this was like, uh, you know, well, I don't see anything wrong with the way they treated that situation with the Facebook post. Like, to be honest with you, at a church, we should be free to talk. Free, We should be free to talk about things that we think and feel. And we, as a church-loving people, should receive it and wrestle with it and, out of love, walk people through different types of things, whether good or bad. The The idea that just saying something that is true, by the way, and it was true, but it was said in a context that you find undesirable because it makes the truth more aware to other people, like that speaks volumes for the type of church and culture that we're building inside of this particular church. And I mean, I just, I want to, I want to throw up. So is that, I guess I could just say that I want to throw up. So it comes back to the, we talk about it a lot. Like the truth is not afraid of transparency. Yeah. If you're on the side of truth and goodness and Jesus then someone posting something, even if there's some details that are messed up, doesn't scare you, doesn't make you feel any sort of way. You just say the truth then. Hey, actually, I saw this post and we want to clarify some stuff. Here's the details that were 
not correct. Here's the things that were correct. The end. But the thing is, is putting the truth with all the right details wasn't going to make them look any better. And the problem was not the friend posting. The problem was your treatment for the entirety of your employment there. I have one more. I have one more thing on my soapbox. No, that's it. But I will say this too, David, you were on your deathbed and they turned their back on you. I, I mean, I, I, I think about when I think about that, I think about all the stories of how Jesus entered people in their absolute worst places. And instead of taking that place and making it a point of contention or debate about why they got to that place, he met them there and redeemed them in that place. And the reality is, by doing that, the church takes that very spirit that Jesus demonstrates, and they throw it to the side, and they say it's not worth our time, because the system is bigger. I actually think that summarizes my thoughts on what is wrong in these types of churches today. What sucks uniquely about this is that, Johnny, you're exactly right. There's this massive discipleship failures. And Jay, you're exactly right. Like the, the resultant behavior is, is absolutely tragic. But if you look at this thing and you lay it out flat, what's fascinating is the difference between the way church members behaved and pastors behaved. Mm-hmm. These church members behaved as Jesus-like as you can possibly imagine. So I know there are stories out there of the exact opposite happening to plenty of people. Mm -hmm. That was not the story here. These church members absolutely a thousand percent had our backs, but the minute that their pastors decided that they didn't have our backs anymore, these church members had absolutely no theological equipping, no doctrinal underpinning, and no no discipleship in any way, shape, or form to be able to pull the the Mark Dever emergency brake, that's what he calls it on pastoral action that they didn't agree with because they had been trained to understand pastoral authority as absolute. Two things on that. One, Pastor S told us that it was our responsibility to make sure that the kids, being the church members, didn't know that mom and dad were fighting. And so he told me that it was my responsibility to make sure that every church member thought that everything was fine between us. And I took that so seriously because I trusted that he was going to be working on reconciliation and that in the end we would be okay. I thought we were going to be pulling in the same direction together. Secondly, everyone who did take our side instantly started getting attacked and started having their reputation and their character smeared. By pastors. And so when people would come to us, by pastors. And so I started... When people would come and be like, is everything okay? Like, this feels fishy. In order to protect them, I would lie. Ditto. And say, yeah, everything's fine. Or I'd say, go talk to the pastors about it. Gosh. And that logic even, like, my kids, they see us fight. Mm -hmm. They see us have to reconcile with each other. I'm not, and my kids are little. These church members are grown adults. They can handle it. Yeah. Unless you're hiding something. Yeah. Or unless you've trained them to to see pastoral authority as so complete that what you're functionally asking them to do is choose between mom and dad. Yep. I think that's, that's the, the point. That's the thing. That's the big point. Yeah. Because 
he had a he, here's the thing like in a weird way his concern was valid he knew his church well enough to know that it was going to absolutely throw them into chaos to find out that there were like two sets like there were two warring ideas about what to do about this among their pastors they would fall apart it would have been incredibly traumatic to the life of the church he was right but the solution was not like let's just pretend everything is okay the solution was for us as pastors to deal with the crap in our midst right so we I was given an opportunity to present alternatives mm-hmm. um, to the plan, and I knew that it was the writing was on the wall. Margaret had already put some perfectly good ideas out there that got turned down. Yeah. I think it's important to know that like the way they had this set up is that our friends were going to have to vote on whether or not they were going to keep us. Mm-hmm. The pastors made it very clear that like they thought it should be this way, that we should leave, and they had been discipled to always vote whatever your pastor says. That's part of being submitted and under the pastor's authority is to vote what he says. That was a huge part of our church culture. And so they were feeling really conflicted because they were like, well, some people were just like, I'm I'm obviously voting for you guys to stay. But other people were like, we don't know what to do. David and I were like, we can't put people through this. This is heinous. Mm -hmm. And so David resigned. It was either put our precious friends through the trauma of either voting for us to stay and then getting obliterated by their, their community Mm -hmm. or saying, look, just vote yes and go on. And then them having to live with that Mm -hmm. or just get up and say, we're stepping out. So I bowed out. And this was after my, my GI doc wanted me to sue them. And it was this whole deal. Um, he wrote the nastiest letter I think I've ever read um, to the church office. And it's important to say that, yes, they did give us severance, but there was no guarantee of severance. They didn't talk about severance until after David had resigned. And so we were working the whole time not knowing when we were going to run out of money. So to, so to clarify here, they were offering six months of full-time severance, one month for each year of service. Um and that that went out in the email that went out at the beginning of January, dear. Um, so that was in there. But it's worth saying that the only reason that they did that was because they had church members putting pressure on them to do that. Well, and right. you don't know if you resigning, if you're getting rid of that, if them letting you go means you get to keep this ever. That's what I'm saying. Oh, I see. I'm sorry, dear. And also at that point, it's too much to go into, but they had promised a whole bunch of other things that then after TBR, they had stopped offering. Yeah. Housing and childcare. They were, they'd offer us housing. They'd offer David part-time work and help finding a job, like all these things. Gosh, I'm so sorry. So you resigned. How did the church react? How did the members react? You stayed on for a little bit as a lay pastor. Can you Uh explain that? (laughs) So we were between a rock and a hard place because that was our support system. Right. Yeah. And we needed it. Yeah. He was still really sick. I was having a baby. We had three little children. You live there. Your whole life is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's also a lot of social pressure at this point because this situation had become fairly public. Okay. Um, and do you stay an elder? Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Pastor N did not like this. I don't think it turned out the way he wanted it to. No. Because I decided, okay, I'm here. I'm going to keep pastoring, gosh darn it. Mm -hmm. Because the truth is, I'm getting paid full-time severance right now. You're still paying me to pastor. (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So while I was looking for jobs and freelancing and doing things like that, I was still like not doing it full time, but just like, all right, when the opportunity arises to pastor, I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. And one of the... In fact, there were multiple situations that arose in the church that the pastors were like, we don't have time for this, but you're not working, so you do it. Yeah, I got a great email in March. A crisis situation arose, and one of them emailed me and said, well, you know, David's not working right now. He's got time to do this. And I wrote back gleefully, yes, I do. <laughs> but I just, like, I determined that, like, one of the things I was going to do was I was going to make them put their money where their mouth was because yeah, along the way there was some tacit admission that Pastor in had some issues, and I thought, all right, let's lean on this. Let's see whether or not we've got the the will to follow through. And so – we started putting pressure in and saying, like, nope, this guy needs to go on a leave of absence. He's a mess. I still very naively was hoping that, like, we could get something. Like, maybe we can create some awareness in this dude and produce some repentance and he'll resign and do what he needs to mm-hmm. do. And but we got it done. Towards the end of our time there, Pastor S and Pastor B met with David separately because they were, first of all, to apologize for what happened. And they were like, upon further consideration, I don't think it was the wisest choice for us to have done this. They did not apologize to me. In fact, I was supposed to be at one of those meetings and Pastor S uninvited me from the apology meeting. And then they said, we're concerned about Pastor N. What do you think we should do to hold him accountable and to help him? And David gave him a whole bunch of things that they should do. And they were like, yes, we will do these things. And David was like, well, all right, I feel really good about that. Like, if this is the way I'm leaving, like, at least this is happening and that's a good thing. None of those things ever happened. Even to the end there, I was honestly holding out hope that like, okay, this is like, this is gross. But like, if what has to happen here is that like, I have to be the sacrificial lamb that like snatches a church out of the mouth of a wolf, then all right, let's go. Like if, if this, if this is, if this is how this is lining up, let's do it. I mean, and every bit of those conversations seemed as though they were going to be productive. Pastor S even said at one point, like, I feel like we made you a scapegoat for Pastor N's issues, which yeah, you did literally anointed us with blood and sent us out of the camp to go starve in the desert. Freaking OT biblical. And Pastor B in particular agreed that like what needed to happen was a public rebuke and discipline. That was like – that was on the table. He asked me point blank, what do you do? I said, you know what you do. First Timothy, you like you rebuke the elder in front of everyone. Um, That's what you do, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. That needs to happen. Didn't happen. The church also brought on two new staff members, right? Yeah, so – Basically, one of the plans that I had said, which is to hire more staff, and Pastor N had said we didn't have money to do that. As soon as David resigned, they hired two new staff members, both at full time, both at full time, and both for a higher salary than even we had after the raise that we were supposed to lie to the congregation about. Oh my gosh, what a slap in the face! So, did you? It was that like, hey, I'm I'm out. I mean, that was that happened so fast. I resigned at the end of February, and within a month, that was on the table. And uh, and I knew it was coming. And we love them, the people that replaced us. Like, there's. I yeah. recommended the dude for the job. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, in retrospect, probably need to call him and apologize. <laughs> <laughs> for God. Buddy, sorry. Yeah. But, like, in the end, I'm like looking at these salary packages and I'm going, what Margaret proposed and what I proposed are basically the same thing here. 
like we we separate like we brought the same idea with some variations on it. This is that idea for more money. And multiple people were like, "Wait, why are we paying them this when we never paid the Bronsons near this?" When one is a single person and one is pregnant with is a couple that's pregnant with their first child, and they were like, "Well, so since we've left, multiple people have come to us and have said." that the elders realized that they didn't do things the right way. They didn't handle things the right way. Pastor N was very open about the fact that he learned so much about the situation with us and he made so many mistakes and he's grown so much and all these things, but he never once picked up the phone to call and apologize to us. Never once. But he was earning trust from all of our friends by behaving so repentant and so contrite and so like conciliatory to them. Like, yes, like, oh, I was just like in a really bad place. Like all this stuff. Never once did he pick up the phone. Which if you're listening to this right now, this is common. This happens all the time. These narcissistic pastors, which we can't diagnose him, but yes, they are spinning these narratives all around and they are wicked smart. And they can go into a room with your best friend and walk out with your best friend thinking that that person, that pastor loves you so much and is so heartbroken that you have been hurt. That's exactly what happened to us. Walk into the next room and say something totally different that tickles that person's ears. It's a billion different narratives to make them look like this sacrificial, loving person who's actually just as much a victim in this because of how much pain and damage it has caused them to have to see you guys hurting when really bro has some marriage problems and wanted to blame you because you saw into it. Yeah, I think he set Pastor S up in a way with that conversation Mm -hmm. and then had a bullet in his gun for when he felt like he needed to dispose of us. He he had a tacit buy-in from Pastor S that, oh, yeah, well, his health's eventually going to become enough of an issue. And then he waited until the right opportunity. And then... You cannot be a narcissistic authoritarian leader and have anyone else that has any form of power near you that is not 100% loyal to you. Yeah. You will have to get rid of them. Absolutely. We saw that over and over again. Someone would be Pastor N's favorite person, would disagree with him once, and would become persona non grata. Oh, you get, they're on the list in the desk drawer. Yes. I will never forget in particular one time a young dude, young dude, he's like 20. He came to Pastor N and asked him for some career advice. Pastor N told him, I think you should do it this way. And the guy said, I appreciate it, and then ended up doing something else. The pastor and came into staff meeting the following week ranting, this dude's dead to me. He's dead to me. I don't ever want him to ask me advice for anything again. He asked me for advice. I'm going to tell him to go get lost. Like he didn't want to take my advice. And he went and did this thing and now he's going to blow his life up. He's an idiot. And then he sabotaged every time that person tried to take over a leadership position going forward. Yeah. This This guy ended up <laughs> with the dubious distinction of serving on my AV team. Because he literally wasn't allowed to do anything else. Mm-hmm. God. And then he got thrashed there too, so it didn't even matter. And since you guys have left, has anybody come to you? What What's going on now? Yeah, that's complicated. A couple people have come to us and have heard our story, are very much in the like, well, we see both sides of this. Like, we see your side and it's terrible, but we also like understand what Pastor N was thinking and feel bad for him as well. There is no Switzerland in abuse. 
I'm going to re-say that again. There is no Switzerland. If you play the both sides, you are not a friend to the person who was wronged in that scenario. We do have some friends who left the church over it. Um, And they're very good friends to this day. But yeah. Fellas, go out there and get yourself some platonic male friends who are willing to hold you when you cry. Because I got a I got a bro who left loud, mm-hmm. left real yeah. loud, and that dude is still my best friend to this day. And just like I mean, holy smokes, having someone who uh, another man who was willing to stand up to an extremely intimidating figure, go in on his turf. He went into this dude's office multiple times, stared him in the eye and said, this is wicked and it is wrong. And I will not continue to allow you to do this as much as it's in my power to do so. Amen. And when he left, he left big. I was just going to say for all the old Testament people out there, like God uses people to confront sins, especially in spiritual authority or other authority positions. And, and he gives us these warnings. He brings people into these people's lives with, and gives warnings and he continues to give warnings. And, you know, like I, I'm amazed. Here's the thing that has been amazed when I hear your story and I hear other stories like this. I don't know if, if people, if the pastors are even listening, that's what breaks, that makes my heart sad. But I also think it's scary because I respect the Bible and I respect God's word. And I, I just hope eventually these men will listen because ultimately if, if they don't listen, not only are they going to continue to have people like you that they're harming, but they're harming themselves too. And, and, and what's amazing about your story, multiple times you both have been so loving to bring pastor in into a place where you wanted what's best for him and the leaders around you while they're actively bulldozing both of you into the ground and then coming back over a few times to make sure that you're dead. Like you, you just get back up in love and you're like, but we can work together. And if if you can't see that as a pastor and a leader, I, I mean, I don't even know the proper way to say how that should scare us as a church. And if you're on an elder board and you see that in your lead, first among equals, whatever we want to call them, and you're not standing up to them and holding them accountable, you're not qualified. Yeah. You're not biblically qualified to be an elder of a church. And good for your friend for saying like, this is wicked because it is wicked. It is evil. It is wrong. It's destroying people and pushing people out into a place where they're questioning their faith, their health is impacted. And some of them may even question their lives and their livelihood. Do I even want to be around as a person? Because this is all playing with our head mentally and it's playing with our hearts and spiritually and it's impacting our bodies in ways that we are not we are not giving enough space and talk to that talking about that enough to be like this is an epidemic that this is happening we and 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 it's it's crushing people literally crushing them and it's just it makes me want to vomit yeah i mean like what a testament to god's faithfulness that any of us are even on this call because it is earth shattering life shattering to go through something like this. And you guys were getting it at every single angle. It wasn't just your job. It wasn't just finances. It wasn't just kids. It wasn't just health. It was 
it wasn't just your marriage. It wasn't just your community. It was literally every single box was getting ticked in this moment. And I'm horrified for you guys. And I'm so glad you had a good friend because you know what? You, you learn really quick in those moments who are the people that are going to ride or die with you. <laughs> who are those people that are going to hold you through the fire and stand with you and I find this quite a bit. I found it in my own life. I find it in our storytellers' lives. You find really quickly that you have new lens, a new a new way of seeing people when it comes to friendships and who you allow in. And those people that stand with you in the fire, Jay and Becca are some of those people for me and Aaron. Like those are the people where you're like, yeah. you're not scared that they're just going to disappear. And that is just such a big part of this for probably many of our listeners too. You have people that you loved, that you cared about, that you called family that just disappear or they believe the worst in you or there's so many layers. So those rider dies like that. I can't even put words to how valuable it is. I think in the end, like final analysis, I suppose, the thing that gets me about this, just zooming out, is that this was a church that built its reputation and identity around being gospel-centered. And the the whole notion of gospel centrality is to borrow Tim Keller's line that the gospel changes everything. It doesn't just change our eternal destiny. It changes our here and now, the way that we live, the way that we live and move in the world. We believe that Jesus is building his kingdom in us and therefore around us and what we come in contact with. And I believed so strongly that the pastors that I was working with meant that. yeah, mm-hmm. And I think they believed that they meant it. But the thing that gets me about this whole thing is that when it comes right mm-hmm. down to it, the gospel is at the bottom, Jesus saying, me for you. I'm giving my life for you, regardless of like what your position on atonement theory, all those things are like, that's like, we can all agree that that's the fundamental idea. Jesus is giving life to us. This completely inverts that dynamic. This is Pastor in getting up and saying, no, you've got to give your life for me. You have to get up and you have to die and you have to suffer and you have to experience utter emptying and metaphorical crucifixion so that I can continue to have position and get the get highlighted in Nine Marks magazine and get asked to speak at the SBC Pastors Conference and be and go on staff to, you know, teach at a seminary while I'm pastoring full time, which is a whole other conversation. And be the guy who gets asked to write the books and and go to the seminars mm-hmm. and present the papers and have the big public persona. And in the end, also be the guy who behind closed doors was cheating on his wife and was doing drugs and was stealing money from the church because all that was happening the whole time. That's such an inversion of the gospel message, and that's what makes it so poisonous to me because it takes what I think is the most beautiful reality in the entire world, and it makes it piss. It's 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 tragic, disgusting, heartbreaking, and we've got two fistfuls of friends who have left the faith because of the testimony that they saw out of this, who have abandoned the greatest beauty in the world because this guy made it an ash heap. That's what gets me about it. What has the greater, like, Nine Marks and SBC prior to that stuff being found, were they made aware that he had major character flaws, and Mm -hmm. what did they do with that? Mm -mm. 
The only people who knew were probably me and Pastor S. I think the uh, Pastor B and, pa- and and the other Pastor S. Pastor S 2.0. Um, I think those guys were either in the dark or in denial. Okay. So, like, what is the accountability structure within the Nine Marks Network and the SBC Network for when a pastor has, like... The plurality of elders is the accountability structure. So the SBC and Nine Marks have, they just are like, yeah, we're not a part of this. Goodbye. And fade into the dark. I think theoretically, like when it came out that Pastor N had been cheating and all this other stuff, that was supposed to have been taken up the ladder to the SBC. But there's nothing that makes that happen or requires that to happen. That Yeah, that's the thing. There is no ladder. There's just word, there's social word of mouth. So he was working at a major Southern Baptist seminary at the time. And so, of course, they sent him down the memory hole as they should. I don't know what Nine Marks did, as far as I know. As a matter of fact, I can look real quick here. Um, they probably have no idea because they're not – yeah, he's still he's still all over their website um, because they're not tracking this stuff. And the perception is that it's not their job to. They're, the idea is that these local pastors are doing that work. And if someone needs to go tell Nine Marks, hey, this dude needs to disappear from your website, they're going to do it. Maybe. We have Nine Marks stories, too. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. And I'm sure that that's like, see, here's the thing. How Nine Marks you are is also, you know, like in here, too. Yeah. Um, But the thing is that there is intense social pressure to not do that. Because now if... I'm one of those guys, if I'm one of the pastors at this church right now, I don't envy them in that the pressure to not talk about it is so intense. Because if you do, on one hand, the perception is you're kicking a guy while he's down. The other bit is that there becomes this suspicion when you start to say, hey, maybe we've got a culture problem here, that you're attacking the church. The idea is, well, if we say, hey, how did this guy get to this point and like what are we going to do about keeping this from happening and so on and so forth? Now you're getting into some uncomfortable territory. We got to talk about dynamics in evangelicalism and how people like him wind up in the positions that they do. Now you're critiquing the system and I hate this. Man, I hate this. I love the church so much I couldn't even begin to describe to you the way that a best man like cares about his best friend's bride to be, right? Like that's that's a pastor's mentality. That's what it's supposed to be. But what we run into so often in evangelicalism – sorry, Margaret, I am ranting now. (laughs) What we run into in evangelicalism is the system around the church that has its – that has its mouths on the church's metaphorical money teats, right? Mm -hmm. The seminaries and the parachurch organizations and so on and so forth, sucking tithe dollars out of these churches – they identify themselves so closely with the church that to criticize the culture that is around the body of the church, it's treated as though you're attacking the church. No, I am not attacking the church. I am attacking a system that has built itself around the precious body of Jesus' bride and is draining the life out of her. And these guys are like, you know, the face huggers from Alien, you know? These guys get on the church's face and get their suckers wrapped around her and she can't see anything and they're literally laying their eggs in her stomach and demanding that she thank them for it and telling them, hey, everyone that comes up to your ear and screams into your ear, you've got a horrible alien creature that's on your face and is literally laying its eggs in your stomach. They're just trying to make you feel bad and get in the way of Jesus's mission and you should tell them to go away. 
Although Margaret and David's story is heartbreaking, it is also a beautiful example of two people with a true heart to shepherd and a commitment to love the flock fiercely. Their perseverance and eye for justice while still being filled with so much hope and so much grace is a testament to their character. It is so encouraging to know that there are people like them out there that follow Jesus doing the messy work of pursuing the wholeness of the church as they shepherd the flock through the wilderness. Margaret recently sent me Ezekiel 34. And as I read through each word, I was filled with both fire and an immense sense of safety. It is a passage that serves as a warning and judgment to shepherds that have abandoned God's sheep But it does not end in a warning. It ends in a promise. The very last verse of the chapter, God says to the people of Israel, You are my flock, the sheep of my pasture. You are my people and I am your God. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. For anyone that has experienced abuse, abandonment, or neglect from someone claiming the title of shepherd, there is a promise that God sees, knows, loves, and is the ultimate good shepherd that will not allow the flock to be brutalized. For Jay Coyle, I'm Jonna Harris, and this has been the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. Thank you.